Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Warning, this week's story contains some explicit language and content and is probably not suitable for younger cephalopods. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 258. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week on the show, we dive deep into the recesses of your mind, people, tuning in and listening to your brain waves, eavesdropping on your deepest of contemplations, uncovering even now all of your sacred and innermost thoughts. Ugh, I just met you, and this is crazy. Why are they called genitals? Do I have another penis I don't know about? I hate manatees. I wish I were riding a dinosaur right now. Prescription cheese. I bet that would be so good. I say all breakfasts are continental, as long as you don't eat them in the ocean. If I poop fast enough, people will think I just peed. How am I just now noticing the anus in manuscript? Why do they make whistles that only rapists can hear? God damn, Pac-Man loves fruit. Does the five-minute rule apply to the floors of men's bathrooms at Target? Wait, it's the five-second rule, isn't it? Well, this pretzel's Can't get that mess out of your head either, huh? I imagine it would be pretty disturbing getting into the brains of a lot of you out there, so I'll just be content to be in my own for a while. Let's start things off this week with a Drabble story. Drabble! Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, no more, no less. Try writing one yourself and send it in to submissions at drabblecast.org. This week's Drabble comes to us from listener Bellcast, and it's called The Plea. He had lost his arm to an IED, but some days it didn't feel that way. The doctor spoke of phantom limb syndrome. They told him the sensation and pain was all in his mind. He could accept that, but a month later his condition took an odd turn. While slumped alone in a waiting room, he felt someone grip him by the hand, the one he'd left outside Kabul. He felt distinctly the meeting of implausible flesh. Unshakable fingers from the unknown slid urgently across his unpalm. Shivering, he comprehended the mysterious tracings. It was a message. Help me.
And that brings us to this week's story, Brown Dust by Esther Friesner. Nebula Award winner Esther Friesner is the author of 37 novels and over 185 short stories, in addition to being the editor of 10 popular anthologies. She's a published poet, a produced playwright, and married mother of two living in Connecticut. So, without further ado, we bring you Brown Dust by Esther Friesner. Santos, what do you see? The white Christ. The boy shrugs his shoulders, dusky and thin as twigs, with just a little afterthought of meat wrapped around them. What else can you see from everywhere in Rio? The other boy is bigger, stronger, older. His fists are just the size of Santos's face. His skin is lighter, too. He leans forward, rises on the balls of his bare feet, and the growl wells up from inside him. He is proud, sensitive to any show of insolence. He is ready to fight. Adeo, no. Teo, the older brother, second in command, lays a staying hand on his master's arm. The stories I told you about this one, they're true. True? Adeo casts a skeptic's eye over Santos. Can those flimsy ribs cage anything as fugitive as truth? There is nothing extraordinary about the brown boy. Scabby, nappy skull, easily smashed in with a loose cobblestone or scored open with the board and nail mace that Adeo carries as his sign of mastery. Rags. Stink. He's not even pretty enough to attract the attention of the men who are willing to pay for such things. That is the truth of Santos, as Adeo sees it. Still, Teo insists. Piri didn't listen to him. Piri is dead. Adeo knows that death limits every argument here. This life he and his friends live is a scanty, dry-sucked thing, life on the rind. But death, even the wisdom of rats flees it, and rats are maybe all that lives worse than he and his gang, little accidents of humanity. Adeo knows how death excels at hide-and-seek, up streets and down dark alleys, in the cold shadow of the shining buildings, under the very feet of the white Christ. Death plays tag using the bullets of grown men, who hunt them like rats, because they are poor and small, and who will miss them? The game is to slip away from that last cold meeting for as long as possible, gain meat, grow, until there is a chance that you can run the streets on your own, or convince a girl to walk them for you. Adeo is almost there. He did not come this far, live this long, by being a fool. What do you see for me tonight, Santos? He repeats, and his fists are only filthy hands now. The brown boy's smile is gray and green. What are you paying me to see? The music from the true streets dances into the alley, drapes the children with invisible roses. It is carnival. Goodbye to meat. The days of abstination are upon us, if we are pious and of one true faith. The children of Rio are very pious all the year round. You remember Marta? Adeo's throat is tight. Your sister? Santos studies his nails. They are encrusted with grime and broken, but he once read this gesture, casual, elegant, in the mind of a tourist long ago, and he has taken it for his own. The tourist looked right at him and never saw him there. 
Santos looked right at the tourist and took the glowing image of a man pulsing black and white and shades of gray lounging against a tall white pillar in the moonlight, contemplating the shining perfection of his own nails. He would have taken more from the tourist, but he was only four then and new to the life. He did not yet know all he could do. Marta has work, Adeo says. In the hotel, the one with the red sign, the one two streets over from where Joao was run over. I know the place. That's where she takes her men? Adeo's fists remain simply hands. It is no insult to hear a puny nothing of a brown boy like Santos intimate that your sister is a whore, your sister who is even whiter than you. Your mother was a whore, but not a very good one, or you would still be with her. She would still be alive. Your sister sold her body when she was ten to a man who was so white he made her look brown beside him. Adeo saw it all, remembers it all, though he was only three. The man paid extra to have Adeo watch him with Marta and patted the boy on the head and gave him candy. But Marta was too plain and skinny to sell herself with much success after her virginity was gone. Marta doesn't have any men to take anywhere, Adeo tells Santos. She's a chambermaid. Santos lets out a long, low whistle of admiration. No shit. Where does she live, then? And why do you still live on the streets? His eyes add with a knife. Adeo lets the question pass. His silence puts out thorns that are black at the tips with venom or dried blood. There's a man, he begins. Santos makes kissing sounds and wastes languishing looks on Adeo. He gets no reaction, so he adds to this his reedy voice raised in a song of unrequited lovers dying of their pain, and he blinks and gulps and thrashes in Adeo's grip at his throat like an iguana pinned by the sudden downthrust of a forked stick. The older boy brings his face close to Santos, stink to stink, and lets the words out only through the thin line of shadow between his teeth. Did you see that coming, cocksucker? He hisses. Can you see what's coming to you now? Santos gulps again. He is dangling on tiptoe, his cracked black and yellow toenails just barely scraping against the street, but he still drags on a dog's grin. You only have a broken racer left. The blade keeps slipping loose from its handle, he says, every word an air-starved whisper. That and a board with a nail. Your good knife is gone. You think it's lost, but it's in the bottom of your sister's scrub bucket. She thinks that if you have no knife, it will keep you out of big fights. She took it from you while you slept in the back of the hotel with the rest of the garbage, and you didn't notice it was gone until you stole that jackfruit from Mama Conscientious' stand. Her man chased you. He almost caught you out by the blue house near Ogun's sacred ground. And when you reached for your knife to cut him away from you, that was when you discovered it was gone. The Santos dog has found an offering of dead things in the sidewalk to roll in and eat. He grins wider. You had to run very fast then, my brother. Adeo lets Santos drop. The older boy's face is tight, screwed up into more creases than a monkey's asshole. He is afraid, and because he is almost a man, he makes it sound like anger. How do you do it, you headless mule? How do you see? How do you know? The other children look from Adeo's anger to Santos's graceful indifference. The boy shrugs again, but he never shrugs the same way twice. 
He has borrowed a thousand ways to pretend that nothing in life is of any consequence, a nosegay of idle poses plucked from the pampered daughters of the old cacao families, the sons of the coffee kings who wear the university ring of medicine or law. He has watched them from the shadows, laid hands on them inside and out because he could. But as to the how of it all, I don't know. A new way to shrug. This one of Fadu's singer's creation, the last gesture those honey-colored shoulders made as she cast aside her rich protector for the poor black truck driver she loved. Santos took it from her dying mind, just as the old man's knife opened her throat to let out blood instead of music. I just see. Not everything. Not anymore. The shudder that blows over his bones in dreadful recollection of those lunatic times is no one's but his alone. I didn't choose to see you make that grab for me, but if I had, ah, the hell with it. You want to pay me to talk or work? An empty question. There's a man, Adeo says once more, back to business, just as if time could fold back on itself like an old flour sack. He's taken a room in Marta's hotel. She says he's rich. She's seen the rings he wears, and once he left his wallet on the table by his bed. She never saw so much money. The other children murmur and roll their eyes. Marta works in the hotel where the tourists come. Marta sees money every day, many kinds. For her to say such a thing, probably enough money for her to take some and the loss go unnoticed. They can scarcely get their minds around the idea of so much, so plenty. The murmurs sink down into awed silence like rain into arid earth. And what? Santos asks. You want to rob him? Your sister hasn't got the guts to lift his roll herself? She's scared she'll lose her shit-ass job, that it? You want me to see where he'll go some night, a lonely place, a devil's hour? Sure, that's not so. I want you to see what he'll do to me when we're alone. Adeo says. Santos tilts his head, letting the words slide in at one ear, letting his scurf-flecked brows meet in a frown of perplexity. But you don't want to do it, he protests. You're wrapped so tight against the thought of it that he'll need a wedge to... Teo seizes Santos by the back of his neck and shakes him twice, hard. Little bones go crick, crick, crick under the skin. Adeo's not paying for you to ask questions. Santos let Teo know without a word that he is a spreading stain on the earth, and the sooner gone, the better. Teo feels Santos's borrowed scorn pour over his skin like icy oil. He lets Santos go. All right, he says to Adeo, blowing Teo away like sea mist. You want to know that much, that little, from me? You want to know what happens when you're with the man, but which man? You better tell me that. You plan to do this now? Maybe for the same reason you'll do it again, again, again. I can't see how your first fuck's going to be different from your fifteenth, your fiftieth. You want me to see? You have to let me know. The air hums and keens around Adeo's slender body. The shouts and cries of distant carnival blow into this alley on a wind that plays a different tune over lives pulled taut and thin as harp strings. What do you need to know? What he looks like. I don't know that yet. Marta says he's white, tall, curly brown hair, brown eyes that look a little green sometimes, strong. He tastes his own lips, tastes sand, salt, dread. No picture of him in your mind, nothing there to help me. 
Santos's cross. Not unless he's the only man in the whole hotel that looks anything like that. Any scars? Any limp when he walks? Anything? I told you what Marta told me. Adeo meets Santos's crossness with a sullen look of his own. That he's tall. That he's white. White. Lord of Bombfem, Adeo. Even you look white. The man won't be the only one there for this, stupid. Can't you tell what'll happen between us by looking at me? Santos is silent. He has walked this thread before, and it scores the soles of his feet like a burning wire. Even the thought of doing what Adeo asks squeezes his guts dry. To read Adeo's path holds too many possibilities, opens too many doors. If he ventures inside the older boy's skull, the future will splinter into a million chances, the lottery of the dead. Paths will close and open as he watches, like the mouths of baby birds. Steel blades will sweep across the scope of his vision. Bullets will make their sharp, unanswerable arguments. Disease will settle in comfortably under Adeo's smutty skin to drink the marrow and gnaw the bone. And for what? For a last vision of brown dust, blown away on the wind of rich men's speeches and tourists' laughter. When Santos was just a little past his fourth year, soon after he first knew what he could do, he threw himself into the embrace of his visions, wrapped himself up in their warmth, the way other children of the streets flung their bodies into flimsy newspaper cocoons against the rain. His gift was very strong. He was too young to suspect the danger. Because he could know, he would know. The city at the white Christ's feet teemed with lives and dreams and futures. Hunger and cold and curses that snapped in his face like the flick of a whip's supple tongue all taught him that any life was better than his own, even if he only borrowed it. Famished, belly and heart, the child Santos made the lives and dreams and future his. All his. All of them. Because he could. They had found him thrashing in his madness, the women in their brightly flounced and tiered skirts, the good steeds of the Orisha, Shangu, Ishu, Oshumare. They had carried these gods of their ancestors within their bodies often enough to think they recognized what had happened to this child. They brought him to the sacred ground where they danced and gave his flailing body to their pasanto. Santos woke in the God-speaker's arms to the beating of the drum, the smells of the offerings, the chanting of the people, the prophecies and commands of the Orishas spoke out of the mouths of their human steeds. His vision was only in his eyes. What the Paisanto told him was a simple truth. He was too young to bear the weight of so much seeing, even if he owned the power to summon it. He taught the child how to make himself door and doorkeeper, and gave him into the protection of Eshu Teriri, made him the devil's own. For only the devil has the strength enough to shield a child from demons. Yet for all this, he could still hear the Paisanto's last warning. Do not seek to look down all the paths, child, for every path that awaits us is guarded by a demon's gate, and not even Eshu Tariri can destroy so many demons. Santos remembers good advice and bad dreams. He tells Adeo a lie. It doesn't work that way. Your head's too full of garbage for me to see where it will lead you. I can only do this through the man. Go back. Ask your sister more about him. Try. Forget it. 
Adeo turns away, impatient, tired of courting a skinny kid he could break in two with a single blow. I'll look after myself. Teo, my razor's broken. Can you lend me yours? Teo is about to give his master what he asks, his razor, his soul, his love. Teo is thinking that Santos tells the truth when he says he can't see everything, when he claims Adeo set against doing this thing with the rich man. How set against it can Adeo be when Teo knows that the beautiful boy and he have already? But then it was Adeo who was the top dog, Adeo who said how and how many times, when to begin, when to stop, Adeo who never spoke of it after and beat his loyal Teo's head against the plastered wall of a house the one time the other boy was the one to offer the first inquiring touch. Teo reached for his razor and finds Santos standing in the way before the blade sees light. And if he's got the way to take it from you, Santos shouts into Adeo's face, Already you're afraid of him. Fear loosens your fingers along with your bowels. It won't be hard for him to break your grip on that shitty razor. Then what? You're dead in the back street next morning, a slash across the throat instead of a bullet in the head, but still just as dead as Piri. Better let your big white sweetheart do anything he wants with you, even what hurts, even if you die from being hurt so bad. This death, that, that man's hand with Teo's blade in it, or one of the death squad's men with a gun shoved through your teeth, who cares? The stupid ones always die. Rage bloodies Adeo's eyes, but this time when he makes a grab for the little brown boy, Santos steps aside. He moves only as fast and as far as it takes for Adeo's hand to close on air, and he laughs and closes his eyes. He doesn't even need to look at Adeo to see which way he'll strike next. Santos sees. He bobs and dodges and bows in a mocking minuet that any copiera master might envy. He does this even when Teo bulls his way unasking into this farce of a fight. He does it until the other children are laughing with him, while Teo and Adeo stand frustrated, foiled, shackled, immobile in every muscle, but the tongues that pour foulness over Santos and his kin. Santos tells him, My mother's dead, if she ever lived at all. Let her be a whore if you want it that way. All our dead mothers are whores in their eyes. He nods to where bright lights flicker just beyond the alley's dark mouth, where pretty women worry if it will take all vacation to find a bartender in this wild and foreign place. You can die and be dust under their feet now, or you can use what I share. Adele lowers his head. This horse feels the bridle. What else do you need before you can see for me? I don't know anything much. Marta didn't even tell me his room number, just what he looked like and that he was really rich and he wanted a boy. A white boy, Santos corrects him. I never said you didn't have to. Santos smiles and Adeo claps his hands over his ears as if to stop his thoughts from leaking out like an infection. This only makes Santos laugh. He tells Adeo what they must do if the older boy wants his answer. Marta is not pleased to see her brother, less pleased to see he's brought a friend. Ascanio, who wrangles the hotel's big trash cans, is always the one who lets Adeo in. He does this because he adores Marta, and because Marta fears him enough to let him fuck her any time he likes, old as he is, touched as he is by the signs of the sickness that will eat him up alive. Once, he was a pretty boy, too. 
Who is this? She demands, glowering at Adeo's companion. Adeo, are you crazy? I told you, never bring anyone here. My job... Give him back his knife, you stupid bitch, Santos says, showing his grave mold smile. Go fish it out from the bottom of your bucket. Dry it off. Rub out the five little rust spots near the hinge. You want him to stay alive? You think not having a knife will save him from fights? Better you start thinking with that stink between your legs than with what's missing between your ears. Marta gasps and makes the sign of the cross, then clutches the little talisman of Dorisha Janssen that hangs from her neck. Adeo. With trembling voice, she gropes for her brother's support against this monster. Santos sees things, Adeo replies calmly. Do what he tells you about the knife later. Listen to me now. Marta listens. Marta tells Santos all she can about the man in room 903. He is indeed very rich. He hasn't even noticed that he's lost money and one of his rings this week due to her dancing fingers. He seems to like her. After all, hasn't he spoken to her with respect, called her Donna Marta, asked her if maybe she knows of a boy, clean, white? Not just one of the usual whores, no, but one who'll be doing this for the first time, a virgin. One he can keep with him for the rest of the time he'll be staying in Rio. He's a fine man, educated, speaking Portuguese with no trace of foreign accent, though his passport makes him American. And he's named a fine price for the boy, a finder's fee for Marta. A virgin? Santos sputters with glee. With the men, Marta says, stiff with dignity. She looks at her brother and repeats, A virgin with the men. Oh, well, he's that, Santos speaks for Adele. One way at least. Well, Marta asks, Now can you tell us, the man who wants Adele, is he safe? If my brother goes with him. She doesn't ask the rest of the question. Even a child without Santos's gift could know the rest of her question. If my brother goes with him, will I have a brother left alive after? Santos only says, get the knife. Later, the rich man in room 903 opens his door to Marta and Santos. The chambermaid has an ingratiating smile, a pleading look in her eyes that mirrors the whip constantly appraised against her, invisible to all but she. Sir, here he is, she says. As expected, the man frowns to see the little brown thing she has in tow. He shakes his head briskly, barks a few words. White, clean, stupid girl. Marta begs his pardon while Santos wanders leisurely through his skull, reading big cars and big meals and good liquor. There are many shadows there, too, but none of them seem to hold blood. Santos lingers among the shining visions until Marta grabs him by his tattered sleeve and drags him away, vowing to the rich man that this time she will get it right. It's safe, Santos tells Adele, and so Marta sneaks her brother into a bathtub, gets him cleaned up, presentable, and takes him to the man. She is grateful to Santos for his reassurance, a pity if her doubts had put the rich man's money in some common pimp's pocket, and she sneaks him down to the hotel kitchen where he feasts on the room service leavings until his belly sticks out like a cannonball. Fullness lulls him. He goes out back to where the garbage cans are kept, and in Adeo's familiar place of refuge, he sleeps. 
The shadow finds him there, where the roaches scurry and the rats wink red eyes. The shadow is a brighter red than the rat's eyes, a red that smells of steel and copper, keen, its color heightened by a scream that only sounds inside a boy's head. Santos bolts awake, Adeo's face before him, shiny silver tape across his mouth, shiny silver tape strapping wrists to ankles, his old knife flickering just out of reach in the last light before his eyes. No. Santos breathes into the darkness. He leaps to his feet, but his legs shake and fold beneath him. The sight of Adeo's bound body melts into the outline of a glossy red sports car, a plate of crisply roasted duckling, a man who smiles. He is there, tall and white, brown hair, brown eyes that sometimes look green, strong, strong enough to step out of mere words into reality, to be outside of Santos's skull as well as with in. His body fills the gap that leads from the alley to the street. Dawn is staining the air behind him gray. He stands with hands on hips, and through the open triangles his arms describe Santos's glimpses, a drunk who staggers past on the far side of the street, a woman fledged in yellow plumes and pink sequins slouches by in the other direction, dead-eyed. Neither one of them cares about what's happening in the alley, though the woman is briefly curious. Santos feels her eyes idle inquiry brush his mind, even though he has not chosen to read her, a dancing particle of dust that slips through the slats of a tightly drawn blind. He is losing his control because he is so afraid. The man says only, you'll come with me. His grip on Santos's arm is powerful. The brown boy doesn't waste his effort struggling against it. The man escorts him in through the kitchen, up through the service elevator, into the room where Adao's corpse lies bleeding on the bed. The man must be very, very rich. He hasn't even bothered to use the bathtub for his sport. Adao's left eye is a silver coin, his right a gaping hole in the universe through which Santo sees fading galaxies of pain. The man gives the brown boy a clear view, then says, This can be you. Then he makes him sit on a chair and gives him a sandwich to eat, ham on bread so white and soft that the boy's fingers dig dirty brown craters in it right down to the pink slice of boiled ham. Santos stares, but doesn't eat, doesn't move, thinks he has forgotten how to breathe. When all the world has traded its cold reliabilities for wildfire madness, best to keep very still and wait for salvation or death. The man seems troubled by Santos's inattention to the food. Aren't you hungry? You look like you ought to be hungry. When I was your age, I was hungry all the time, and the streets weren't any kinder than they are now. He takes a heavy-sided water glass from the table beside the bed, beside Adeo's corpse, and fills it with Coca-Cola. Drink. Santos follows orders. There are no lights on in the room, but he reads the path the man's hands take in the dark, just as he reads the shapes and shadings of Adeo's body, the way an ordinary person might see a drift of sand draped in the shape of a flower and know that a rose lies buried beneath the wind-blown grains. Santos reaches out his hand to take the glass, but he is shaking so badly that he drops it. Cold liquid splashes up, runs its sticky trails through the filth between his toes. The man curses. 
Santos believes that now he is going to die. There is no sense left in holding on to reality, in holding off all the things that he can see, not with the edge of a knife pacing off the boundary of his breath. Better to die too crazy to know that you're dying. Santos lets his mind open and welcomes all the clamoring images that desire to come in. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing but darkness beyond black. Darkness the color of space without stars. Santos gasps, and the man laughs. <laughs> I've put my walls around you, he says. It's as if I'd dropped you into the bottom of a deep glass jar. Then I paint the inner surface with what I want you to see. This is how I did it, how I blocked your visions. That was easy. Changing them to fictions of my own now. <laughs> that was hard. But they don't pay me for doing what's easy. And only now Santos feels a corner of the darkness peel away, senses his mind regaining its special sight. There is a boy, not Santos, not Adeo, none of the bird-boned children of invisibility and forgetfulness. No one Santos knows. This boy, too, walks under the shadow of the white Christ. He prowls the glare of the white sand beaches. He filches what he can from anywhere, anyone, and he feels a belly that never knows the meaning of enough. He isn't very pretty, but he looks almost white, long-limbed, brown hair, brown eyes that are sometimes flecked with green, weak. He has filled his eyes with things unseen by others, cobbled streets where children lie dead or sleeping, carnival revelers whose bones are as ready to snap as to dance, little girls who sell the bloody breaking of their maidenhoods for bread. Mothers who call on God and die at the devil's hands. He has seen enough. Lights go on in the hotel room. The man takes something out of his jacket pocket and shows it to Santos. Do you know what this is? Santos can't read, but he knows. Law is all he can say. The man smiles. Very good. He folds away the signs of his honorable profession, the insignia of one who has dedicated his life to keeping the great city of Rio clean of the vermin that breed crime. They found me on the street when I was a couple years older than you. They were going to kill me. They'd already killed my friend Nico. But before they could put a bullet in my brain, I started screaming things at them. Things I knew about each one just by being near him. Things that they had never brought into the light. They might have taken me for a lunatic, except for the truth of every dirty thing that broke my mouth. I screamed and screamed their secrets in their faces until one of them ran away, one crumpled like a paper cup. But the third... The man shakes his head and chuckles fondly as if he is remembering a birthday party. The sweet taste of yellow cake, rich with eggs and butter. The festival sight of ribbon-wrapped presents. The third man, he saw. He saw without being able to see the way you and I can. He looked past the shame of his own hidden sins, the secrets I was screaming out of hiding, and understood what I was and what I could be. He put his arm around me and took me home. 
The man's smile still lies across his lips, but Santos sees a drowned face float up out of the depths beneath it, a boy's face, emptied of everything but fear. The man is speaking again, but Santos doesn't hear. The man's words fill him with images and icons, pour themselves into the cistern of his brain until Santos imagines that the words will never stop, that they will keep on flowing until they come bursting out in twin floods from his eyes. What is this man telling him? What is he saying? Promises, offers, rewards, life. A life of clean rooms, new clothes, food brought to his plate instead of scrounged from a gutter, education, favors, praise, a single path that soars straight and wide and soft all the way to heaven. This, all this for Santos, when the man names him his son. They'll whisper about it, of course, the man is saying. A kid? <laughs> me? Me and some woman? I got tired of women long ago, before any of the men I work with really got to know me. They think I've never wanted a woman. Well, not anymore. Nothing there to see with women, just them wanting plain things, love, care, cash, babies. With men, at least, you get them hating it, the ones I pick. I don't go after the butterflies, too much like women. Only the ones who do it for the money, because it's what they've got to do to eat, even if they hate it. Hate that can never break out, lift a hand against you, not even breathe on you because you've got too much power, because you can break them any time you like, and the poor bastards know it. He smiles. Delicious. Santos says nothing. Santos is still mesmerized by the death mask of the time-drowned boy that drifts across the leering face of the man. The man is still speaking. He needs no one to listen for his words to be real. He is his own reality. They know how I am. They think they know at the station, but no one says a word. With all I can give them, no one's got the balls to cross me. Not even when I let them know I only want the young ones. Oh, if I asked for the captain's son, I suppose he'd find a way to buy me off, but if I insisted... A shrug. This is one that Santos will let go by, unborrowed. I'm good. No hound can trace things like I can. One man I met at the gaming table, an American, he caught on to me. An educated man, a scientist, I think. He was fascinated, and he was young. It gets better when they're young. His eyes slew towards the bed. Leaves tumble over the brown boy's eyes. Suddenly he is himself a hound running through the woods he has never known. Trees that are cold and gray, crowned with red and umber and gold. He hears an unfamiliar voice like a wind rushing through the treetops. Puts a hard American edge to the soft caress of Portuguese. It is telling the man that such highly developed powers of mind might be genetic. A mutation become a heritage, a wonderful gift to be cultivated like the heavy pods of the finest cacao trees. The power dwells in every part of him, cell and seed, each thought and entity electric, holding an independent world imperceptible to the eye, yet still there. 
The voice tells of the particles that teem through the bolts of ungoverned lightning that scatter themselves across the skies, speaks lovingly of those same grains of fire and light after men have read their secrets, guided them into the civilized paths of circuits and wires. Then the voice is asking the man to come away with him to the land where these strange trees grow, to give himself to the brick-walled university, to open doors. Let us learn what you are. Let us in. Santos claps his hands over his eyes. Now the voice is screaming, screaming pain and fear and betrayal combined, twisted into a tight braid of shrill sound that turns red with the young American's blood. And Piris, and Adeos, and others, others. Disney World, the man is saying. I'll take you there, or you can wait until you're old enough to go with a group of your school friends. You know Mickey Mouse? Would you like to see him? Would you, would you like to hear him laugh? A hand touches Santos, warm and damp. Now I know how that American felt when he found me. The pleasure of discovering a wonderful thing, a beautiful monster. You're a grubby little piece of shit right now, but I'll make you beautiful. I knew as soon as I saw you, the instant you first tried to look inside me. I couldn't. Santos swallows bile between the words. Stupid, of course not. Even now the man's mind gives up nothing, not even a name. If what I am, what we are, comes through the blood, who knows how many other fields my fathers plowed, how many others like me slid out between some whore's thighs. Never thought of that, did you, little blackbird? He cuffs the side of Santos's head with a ghastly tenderness. His fond look fills Santos's mind with the image of a serpent's fang, a honey-colored drop of poison trembling pendant from the tip. My second life is sweet, precious, protected. I've met others not as good as I, but with their own touch of our talent. They like to play fortune-telling games, pouncing on stray scraps of their victims' thoughts, using the grains of truth they scavenge to become the foundation for a mountain of lies, bleeding the fool's white. He stops himself, throws back his shoulders, enjoying a memory that brings only more self-satisfaction. My first case, one of those charlatans. He was conning the wife of a cabinet minister. Can you imagine the nerve of that black bastard? Oh, the look in his eyes when he realized what I was, when he knew he'd stuck his hand down a rabbit hole and pulled out a tiger. The man laughs, but his laughter breaks off abruptly. The brown eyes that are sometimes flecked with green hide for a moment beneath heavy lids. But he almost touched me. His mind crept too close to mine. I could feel it, and that was when I knew it must never happen again. I kept him alive in the jail cell long enough to practice setting up my shields. He helped me learn how to keep my thoughts safe. Walls. The word slips from Santos's lips. A black wind blows it from his mind, and the boy finds that the thick-walled jar into which he's been dropped is flawed. There are tiny cracks no thicker than a single blonde hair that shiver over the glass sides. 
The man nods. To him it is only a word the boy has chosen to say. Not around me, he says. Why make myself a prisoner? Walls that run in an endless curve around them. Yes, let theirs be the minds locked away. But never let them know it until I choose. I paint the glass with false images, counterfeits, so the snoops believe they're seeing my thoughts when all they touch is the soap bubble skin of a lie. Santos doesn't ask what became of the unlucky fortune teller after he'd outlived his value as the man's teacher. Some answers come without the need to ask the question. Some thoughts come without the need to summon them as visions. Let the dead bury their dead. The boy's silence and disinterest displease the man. A scowl grooves the smoothly shaven face, its pallor tinted ever so slightly with the blood that made his mother's skin brown. Well, the man demands, what do you say? I've made you a good offer. Will you take it, or do you miss your friend there? He jerks his head to where Adeo lies. Santos touches the little coin in his pocket, all that Adeo and the others could afford to pay him for his vision. A fortune. What Adeo would have earned for letting this man invade his body was going to be split among all the children in the pack. Already Teo was dreaming of meat, the little sinner. He wasn't my friend, Santos says with a parched throat. Just another fool. This answer makes the man happy again. Then I can guess your answer. Good. We'll make a fine team. When you're grown and I've got you properly trained, you and your sons after you. I'd breed my own if I could, but... He blushes, and there is a brief flash in Santos's skull of a doctor's office. Words, a verdict, denial, proof, rage. The man speaks on rapidly, using words to scoop the escaped images back into his own private thoughts. His hand drops heavily onto Santos's shoulder. And when you're big enough, you'll help me in my task, my son. Our finest mission. You and I will track them down together. There won't be a single one of those hairless rats we won't be able to find. We'll make this city beautiful, clean, free of them. I do well enough now, but the captain keeps taking me away from my pleasures. Abductions, murders, all the cases I must handle dutifully while the city rots away under my feet. He spits in disgust, cleaning his mouth of the foul taste of street children. Inside his keeping jar, Santos is treated to a fine show. Images flicker and fly around the curved sides, driven in through the glass by the force of the man's mind. The glass itself is made of small, separate grains. The images are made of smaller ones still. They find the countless cracks and penetrate. Santos cannot stop them. He sees bold men stalk the streets, heroes whose quest is a cleansing. The children run, hide in all the darkened crannies where the dust of the street has always hidden, but this time the heroes come prepared. The hound races ahead, over the stones, and roots out a harvest of frightened faces. The hound smiles as the men see to the dirty business that will in time make the city clean. 
Santo sees the last pleas for mercy in small eyes. Santo sees the knife and the gun and sometimes just the truncheon that breaks the side of a skull. He sees the bodies on the streets and in the alleyways and in the places of deep water. He can't turn away or close his own eyes against this gift of vision that the man urges upon him. The glass walls are not a prison to keep him in, but a heavy shell to keep out all thoughts but those that the man decides are good for him to see. They rasp against him, all these visions. They have a million tiny teeth that nibble at the core of Santos's mind. He feels it crumbling away, becoming motes of thought and will and desire, blowing round and round inside his head. He lets it crumble, lets himself become those countless particles of dust that the wind whips against the glass walls. Dust alone escapes the prison. Dust alone goes unnoticed underfoot. He feels himself break through, scattered, and the last thought left echoing behind inside the empty jar is, now I am free. One flying moat lodges itself behind a small pair of black eyes that haunt the baseboard of the room. The mouse peers out to witness the man's surprise when his camaraderly touch sends the thin body in the chair toppling over onto the rug. The mouse doesn't know why it is so important to observe this. There is a discarded ham sandwich also lying on the floor, a thing that ought to be of much greater moment to the little beast. Yet still, she keeps this vigil. Now, surprise is shock. Shock is fury. The man picks up the slack, skinny body and makes it rattle down to the bones. When there is no response, he tosses it aside, swears. He yanks the telephone from its cradle, makes a call. I've had some fun, Sergeant. Have the boys come look after the leavings. There's a chambermaid here you might need to deal with, too. I'm heading home. I've had a shitty night. I'm tired. And stalks out. In the streets, dust blows across the face of the sun, into the face of the white Christ on his mountaintop. It sweeps down streets and alleys. The sparks fall down, wild grains of freed knowledge and memory, seeking new lodging, as the spirits of the Orisha seek the bodies of their faithful steeds when the drums of the sacred ground throb the summons. The woman chosen to be the Yamanha steed becomes the Lady of the Waters. The man who bears Ashu Teriri's spirit is the devil himself. Teo huddles in the shadow of the cathedral. A breeze passes over his crusted eyelids. A single grain of Santos's scattered self steals into his mind. In dreams, he learns the faces of his hunters, sees a hundred visions open, a hundred doors through which he can escape, if that is all he wants to do. Teo stirs and snuffles in his sleep. He sees the face of the hound and the trim, clean house where one man lives alone. The windows are never locked. The man sleeps on a white bed, dreaming that he's the only one capable of learning how to paint illusions on the curved glass walls he sets around his enemies. In dreams, Teo sees the brown boy's smiling face as Santos teaches him the lesson of the glass jar.
He is Santos's steed. He carries all that Santos is or was or ever knew, and all that Santos tells him still needs to be done. The window will be open. The man will be asleep. Teo will have a knife and a glass jar painted with false images to drop over the sleeper's mind, and the image of Adeo's ruined face to guide his hand. In other corners of the city, other children stir. The sparks fall down, the seeds spread through their blood, and through the blood of all the children they will bring into the light. They will know their hunters. They will have the power to become the ones who hunt. The white Christ stretches out the shadow of his hands, and a few scattered grains of Santos's self dance there, swirling on the wind. The tourists feel the wind and wipe away the grains of sand that sting their eyes to tears. And they cough, calling for someone to do something to put an end to all this troublesome dust. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Pretty gritty dog-eat-dog world out there. And somehow I'm sure I don't even know the half of it. Hop on our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. Let us know your thoughts. We love good discussion generated by fiction. And if it shook you up a bit or you had a good time, consider donating to our show. We have easy $5 or $10 a month automatic subscriptions that take about 30 seconds to connect with. Those make a big difference to us, folks. Really puts wind in our sails. And not a bad value for all the kick-ass fiction we bring you, huh? High five. So each week we close out the show with a 100-character story we pick from our discussion forums. This week's comes from first-time winner Emily, with this one. His tears fell just like the rain. From 6,000 feet as he pulled frantically at the cord of a parachute that wouldn't open. Fun. The story, I mean, not falling to your death from an airplane. We tweet those gems out early each week, along with videos of bears wielding bow staffs. Follow us on Twitter at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it. But feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's kick-ass episode artist, Amber Carkey. Amber's a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and graduate of the Maryland College of Art and Design. In her spare time, she enjoys eating sweet potato fries and watching adorable baby sloth videos on YouTube. Check out her website at ambercarkey.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, all breakfasts are continental, unless you eat them in the ocean. And noise filled the room like the smoke. Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke. In the dark corner table.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.